A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Then they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had time that Jesus had appeared to disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your, your hands, and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. The gospel. Good. Thank you. Man, the worship was incredible, as it always is incredible. did a great job. Hey, before I begin today, I want to share with you 
that most of you know that I don't have children of my own. And uh, there was, uh, Elsa goes to our church, and Elsa, I think she was six or seven when she first started going to this church. And I always gave her hugs and said, you're my favorite, you're my favorite, which I hug all the kids and say, you're my favorite. <laughs> but years down the line, we hired Elsa uh, back in January to work on, on, as an administrator to her office. Now, she doesn't work under me, so she has the freedom to say her opinion to me all the time. And I have an open door policy, so she comes into my office on Friday and goes, guess what? And I'm putting the message together. I'm really divine inspirational, trying to get this thing together so you guys can understand it, so I can make sense. And she goes, she goes guess what? And before I could guess, she goes, you're going to be alive when the world goes to hell. And I go, what are you talking about? And so she gave me this information because I, I, she connected in a conversation with me that basically I told her, yeah, I am an environmentalist, but I'll probably be dead by the time things change. Well, according to her information, it's 2030. So in the next 12 years, if we don't do something different, these are our conversations. And so I talked about the, how our denomination broke uh, broke from the Methodist church because of the freedoms that we had uh, against slavery. And she goes, you know Abraham Lincoln didn't care about slaves. What are you talking about? Oh, the only reason he freed the slaves because he wanted to give them voting rights so they could vote him in and to keep his position. I wanted to throw out some information. So she goes, she says to me, we talked about Cedar Chavez. Oh, she has her opinion on Cesar Chavez. You know, he was a terrible father. I go, what are you talking about? I love Cesar Chavez. That's one of my favorite museums to go to. And I said, girl, you, I've got to take you to Cesar Chavez Museum. And to me, it's such a spiritual experience. And then she goes to me and she goes, oh, because she does a bulletin. I noticed you're quoting Cesar Chavez. Is it because it's Cinco de Mayo? And I go, <laughs> and I said, maybe. So I'm going to start the message. And the reason I'm telling you this is sometimes our perspective on Christianity or the Bible, when we look at it with new eyes, it changes us. And it not, doesn't affirm us what we really believe, but it changes us and makes the Word of God so real when we look at it with younger eyes, the Scriptures. And so let me begin the Cesar Chavez <laughs> quote. <laughs> It's on the screen, because it's Cinco de Mayo, I guess. He said this, If you really want to make a friend, go to someone's house and eat with them. The people who can give you their food give you their heart. And I think about this, and I go, it is so true. Some of the closest friends that I have, or that they think that I am, not only that we go to restaurants, but they invite you to their home and have a home-cooked meal. And I remember, like, I enjoy going to home-cooked meals. And my wife's like me. I'm going, what are they serving? Because I am not an Anthony Bourdain. If you know Anthony Bourdain, he's the one that goes all over the world and eats anything that's moving, alive, or whatever. I'm not him. I like to eat safe. And I remember when Jennifer and I went to southern Sudan and we, via uh, Nairobi, Kenya, that we were in a meeting, and they go, do you like a chicken? 
And I said, yes, we all like chicken. We never knew we would hear the chicken screaming for its life in the kitchen. And then all of a sudden you hear two bombs, dead silent. Then an hour later, we're having chicken. And I'm going, this is good to be a vegetarian right now. Okay? And then, get this, then we flew over to southern Sudan. And we met with the tribal leader. And we were there for a week. And he goes, hey, we want to celebrate. We're going to, do you like goat? Goat. There's one goat that I've seen all week standing there minding his own business. And someone on the team said, yeah, we like goat. I hate goat. I've never eaten goat. I've never eaten goat. I like my breakfast bars. And so sure enough, I never saw the goat again. And so why I'm sharing you this is Malaku is a good friend of mine. He's right there. Malaku used to be the pastor at the Ethiopian uh, church, and then he became the senior pastor of the Ethiopian church, and then he got smart. He said, forget it. I, I'm not being a pastor. I don't like to be the senior pastor. It's too much work. It's, it's not. But his wife owns this incredible Ethiopian restaurant. And so Malaku always asked me, would you like to come and eat to the restaurant? So when I come, I'm treated like a king. And so when I go there to have a meal with Malaku, which in the Ethiopian, Ethiopian culture, eating a meal with your loved ones is important. And so they have a back room for me, and his wife sets out this incredible meal for me. And I'm going, I love Ethiopian food. But then I found out years later, when I come, she doesn't make Ethiopian food. She makes American food of things that I can digest and handle. But I thought I was e eating Ethiopian food. <laughs> it was American food. <laughs> and so why I'm saying this is it's so true about Cesar Chavez. When you eat, eat with someone, they give you their heart. And the reason I'm doing this in our gospel reading today was very powerful. All the scripture reading was very powerful. And the scripture that we're talking about here was, was when Jesus, before, after Jesus rose from the dead and before he ascended into heaven, there was a long period there that he was with his disciples. And if you understand this, that basically the risen Savior was making breakfast for the disciples. Peter, I didn't realize he was naked. Well, I, I've got to figure out why he was naked. But anyway, we, <laughs> Peter was crazy. But Peter... Peter was sitting, it's interesting because I'm listening to the scriptures as you're listening to the scriptures. And so there's three stories here that have to do with meals. Jesus is really hardcore in eating meals with his disciples here and also with other people. And it's interesting, three, three of the stories have to do with him eating meals with people. And so this is important to understand. The reason he sat down and ate meals because they were playing with the idea, is he a ghost, is he a spirit, is he really resurrected? And Jesus knew that if he ate food, they would realize this guy's not a spirit, this guy's not a ghost, because ghosts don't eat food. And so follow me on the screen. Before his death, Jesus was often either feeding people or eating with them. On the night before his death, he shared a Passover meal with his disciples and told them to remember him and his sacrificial death every time they shared a meal together. Most of the resurrection stories also revolve Jesus feeding or eating with his disciples. 
Now, I think a lot of us in the American church, when we look at Scripture with new eyes, this is where it gets really powerful because we miss out a lot of what Jesus is talking about here. Now, I put it on the screen. It's just one word. It's incarnation. And we really don't hear that in the sermon. It's not reincarnation, but incarnation. And when I'm talking about incarnation, the biblical definition of incarnation is this. It's found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. It says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So we know Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. So therefore, God's spirit was incarnated in Jesus. So he had God's spirit within him. And so follow me back on the screen. Uh, although the incarnation of Jesus was special revelation, what is revealed through Jesus is that God is pleased to dwell in all that God made, including you and me. God is pleased to dwell in the humans whose flesh and blood is nourished by the food they eat. This is the Christ-soaked universe which gives itself for our fully embodied lives. It is a reflection of the way in which God empties self and gives all of us in an outpouring of love. So after breakfast, they had real food. You have to remember Peter, before Jesus, before he died, uh, Jesus died on the cross, Peter said what? Foot in the mouth, I will never deny you. And he denied him not once, but twice, but remember, three times. This is where we lock in about him denying. This is where the typical church going, okay, I can connect with Peter because he denied him three times, but yet he still was a disciple. But follow me on this. This is where, if I was Peter on that boat, I would go, oh, no, Jesus. Okay, what am I going to do now? Okay, but he was so excited to see him. But Jesus gives him three times to reaffirm his love for him. As he denied him three times, he gave him three times to reaffirm. And the third time, he was annoyed. But following me on the screen, he says, Feed my lambs, if you love me. Tend my sheep, if you love me. Feed my sheep. Three times. He denied him three times. Three times. Jesus had fed Peter both the literal food and sacrificial with his love. It was a time for Peter to realize that God was pleased to dwell in him in the same way God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. If Peter truly loved Jesus, he would now love all who Jesus loved. So now the incarnation happened to Peter. So what happened with Peter is spirit. If you look at the history of Peter, Peter was phenomenal when it came to sharing the gospel. He was powerful. You have to understand uh, Emperor Nero is the one that sentenced Peter to death by crucifixion. And guess what? Peter, denied him three times, basically said to Nero, I'm not worthy to die like Jesus. So he was crucified upside down. He requested this. So you think of this, the guy that denied him, there's something going on when you're filled with the Spirit, when you're filled with the incarnation of God's power, of God's anointing, that all of a sudden this fear is gone, this courage is moving on. And so, therefore, I'm thinking about this. If we're looking at Peter, there's a pattern here. And I'll put it on the screen. And I'm going to show you a pattern with, uh, with what is going on and how we are called to follow this pattern as well. 
Now, this is interesting because, again, the church, including myself as an evangelical, we have difficulties doing this because we want to avoid this because this is something that we're going, oh, my goodness, this takes guts. This takes, when we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, this is where, what happens. And so this is where we want to avoid. Look back on the screen. The pattern we want to avoid is a cross shape. It is incarnational because it includes both the vertical and the horizontal. The spiritual and material God and human. Many Christians want only the vertical and spiritual. You talk to many people this, well, I'm really not a Christian, but I'm very spiritual, right? We hear this a lot. And if you look at the cross, that there's a pattern. There's a vertical and a horizontal. I'm going to stick with this cross. If you notice Felix that painted did all these pictures, Every one of them, there's a, there's a figure of a cross. There's a pattern. It's the message, okay? It's a pattern. Vertical and horizontal. Here's what happens when we want to just connect with the vertical. The problem is we think the reason we're going through suffering or difficulties that all of a sudden is connected to our bodies. So what we have tendency to do is focus on vertical. What we do is we think and believe that only Jesus is up there. Somewhere he's floating in heaven, just chilling until he comes back. And so when we pray, right, please, and we look up, and we look up and do this because in our mindset, we think Jesus is just up there. So a lot of us, when we focus on just the vertical, then all of a sudden we go, we don't experience Jesus. Where is God in this, in this situation? Because we're locked into this one way instead of looking at this way. Follow me on the screen. It is not incarnational. It's, it is not a cross-shaped pattern where the vertical and horizontal, the physical and spiritual, God and human beings come together. There is no concern with caring for bodies. It's all becomes about personal exit plan from God, from earth up to eternal joy in heaven. If we are to see the incarnational pattern, our eyes must be open to see Christ here, now in everyone and in everything. We will see him both in all the joy and also in the suffering. Just as the disciples were slow to recognize the risen Christ, we are often just as slow to recognize Christ in ourselves, in each other, and in all creation. Now, let me show you this. How close is Christ? He's here. He's as close as you can get. He's in you. He's in you. He's in all of us. And so this is where we kind of forget about this pattern here. And we just focus on this. And so follow me on this. Let's look at the pattern of Apostle Paul. Remember the Paul? We just read the scripture. It was a powerful scripture. Apostle Paul was formerly known as Saul. Saul was a religious man. He was a synagogue, church-going guy. He was a genius when it came to the, the law of the religious laws. He knew it like the back of his hand. He was smart. But yet he had problems. And, he was, and, and the thing is, if you studied, he was a very religious person. And so when the Spirit fell down and spread into all these people, when these people were incarnated, when these people were filled with God's spirit in them, it exploded the movement 
of following Christ. Saul was careful. He was frustrated. Okay? He was very frustrated. So therefore, he was going after and persecuting these Christians. There was a spiritual blindness that was going on with Paul that he couldn't see it. And so therefore, now follow me here. Verse 3, it's on the screen. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, this is where I believe get off your high horse came from. This is just a personal belief because the dude was on his high horse. Okay? And so suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Let me show you where a lot of us overlook this particular scripture. Because who are you overlooking here? Follow me on the screen. Christ was saying, the people you are persecuting are in me. And I am in them. So what you do to them, you do to me. So this is why Jesus is saying, why are you persecuting me? Because I'm in those people. He's not just here, but he's in these people. And so, so the thing is, he's connecting. And when we realize that, that Jesus lives within us, we don't need to go far to say, where are you, Lord, in this situation? Because when we're going through persecution, he's going through persecution. When we're going through joy, he's going through the joy with us. This is where Saul was struck blind. He was confused. And I think this is a metaphor for a lot of religious people. Because a lot of religious people are choosing, if not, to be blind. To not see this. Or not deal with this. And they only see what they want to see. So he was physically completely blind. Now back on the screen. Saul was much like the disciples after the resurrection who did not recognize the risen Christ because they did not know where and how to look for him. Saul's physical blindness was an outward expression of an inner spiritual blindness. Blindness is a choice when it comes to spiritual blindness. We want to be right in our ways. When else is going off on me about I'm going to be living in hell in 2030, she's right. But I like to live, have my own little blindness, like, hey, you know what, this is, the, this is this. And so Paul's probably single-handedly responsible for the most growth of Christianity in history. Because somehow, in some way, that he just got up and realized, I need to do a 180. And so what was important to him then, then is not important, and what wasn't important is, is now it's important. Paul's personality did not change. He was dogmatic. He was focused. He, he, he probably had a personality that rubbed everyone wrong. And then when he followed Jesus, he still had the personality that rubbed everyone wrong. But he, he changed his main focus here because his eyes were open. He saw a whole new way of seeing things. And so for Paul, on the screen, Christ was a universal reality which he knew Many were blind to, like he had been. Paul wanted people to see and experience this life-changing reality with Christ. Now, Brooke used to joke with me that I used to say a lot, the key thing, the key thing. Here's the key thing. And he used to rattle keys at me. 
And I, and I noticed Joe Biden says the same, not the key thing, but Joe Biden, when he begins talking, he goes, hey, folks, hey, folks. He does this, everything starts with folks. And so I look at the Paul, and I go, Paul says the same thing over and over. If you count it on his writings, 164 times. And this is what he writes on the screen, in Christ. Do you think Paul understood what it meant, the incarnation, in Christ? 164 times he says, in Christ, in Christ, we are in Christ. Now let me show you some scripture. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is being all things. And in him all things hold together. Look over to Colossians chapter 3.11. There is no longer Greek, Jew, circumcised, or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. Now look at Acts. For in him we live and more and have our being. This is just a small sample. This is where the analogy comes from, the body of Christ. So not only do you have the, the incarnation of Christ in you, we are all connected to the body of Christ. So therefore, where is Jesus? Jesus is here among the body of Christ. And so therefore, he chooses to work through the, through the body of Christ. This is how he works. This is how he does things. And so we are one body made of many members. I was going to do this illustration, and I don't, and it looks stupid when I try to do it, so I'll just tell you what I was doing. If I have one body that has learned to compensate very well when it comes to the tremors, because when my hand's going, my elbow compensates automatically to calm things down. Or when I move, it compensates. It, it knows how to compensate. Because when one part of the body is affecting, like my hand, or I'm trying to do something right, the elbow or something will turn to compensate to slow the tremor. This is what the body of Christ is built for. So when somebody is having difficulties in their life, that we compensate and hold each other because we move together because we are one. What the church body does is all of a sudden, like a tremor, it takes a knife and just stabs the hand. And you're just going... That's the body. <laughs> my hand will not go, okay, take my hand off. My whole body will react in pain. This is how we're interconnected through the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So, when we come to the table on the screen, each of us is to be fed with Christ as, as in the bread and the cup. It has opened our eyes to see that we are in Christ and therefore communion with each other. The Spirit of Christ dwells in us together as one body. That, too, is an incarnation. Therefore, what we do to each other, we do to Christ. Do you get that? You do to Christ. So what does this mean? That when I've partaken communion, we remind it, because we eat it, it's a meal, and we take his blood to remind us of the incarnation of Jesus in us. This is why we do communion every Sunday. Sunday. Now, I, I've seen a lot of churches with this slogan, and I put it on the screen. Love God, love people. Right? This is our slogan. Love God, love people. And the, the thing is, where I'm having an issue with, it's one or the other. I love God, and I love people. How about this? This is in the incarnation thinking. Love God by loving people. 
So how I love God is by loving you. Because God loves you. And how I care about you. You've got to be very careful on that because when I judge you, who am I judging? So love God by loving other people. Do you see the pattern here? I, I made a joke last night. I go, oh man, because I, I kept saying the pattern, the pattern, the pattern. And I go, man, it sounds just like the secret, the secret, the secret. And I go, it's not, it's not the secret, it's the pattern, okay? And so follow me on this, the pattern here. Christians often want to focus on the vertical beam only. They over-spiritualize loving God, and they think loving God has to do with going to church, reading the Bible, worshiping, and prayer. Those things merely train us to love God. But the only way to actually love God is to love what we can see touch, smell, taste, and hear. We love God by loving all. That is in, in Christ and all that Christ is in, which is everything and especially people. If you love, if our love is not incarnational, then we are not loving God. Now, let me show you how John, John gets hardcore here, okay? <laughs> Follow me on verse 16. I didn't write it, John did. <laughs> I'm just a messenger. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother and sister in need, yet refuses to help? If that is not a gut slug or whatever it is, that's hardcore. Because we, in our culture, we can go by someone in need and not see a thing. And we as a country can do the same thing. And so this, okay, let me prove to you incarnational. Follow me on this screen, what Jesus said. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was a stranger, and you gave me something to eat. When you did to the least of these, you've done it unto me. You see what I mean? You see, he's basically saying, look, you're helping me because I'm in that child. I'm in that refugee. I'm in that, that person that's being abused. I'm in that person that, and so when you help them and see them, you are helping me because I'm going to use you. This is where narcissistic is of, the, uh, of just incredible stop when it comes to people helping other people because we get so self-centered. And so this is where faith comes in. Faith is a big difference by, between certainty. Faith, it's on the screen, faith is not something you just believe. Now get this. Faith is something you trust to be true and act as if it is true, even if it seems so hard or unnatural. When we act in faith, God's grace empowers us to do what is hard, choosing to trust that that the way we love Christ is to love others, and then acting according to when grace kicks in, it helps us to grow in love. I had someone come up to me and said, this, he didn't sound like this, this is how I heard it. He came in. <laughs> you talk about grace a lot, why don't you talk? And I go, you don't understand grace. Because grace is a life-changing, life-altering, 180 around when we embrace grace. That changes us to be the followers and the anointing of Christ. That is power. Grace is not, embracing grace is not letting you live your own life and do whatever you want and you're just saved by grace. Grace 
changes you. This is why we call it grace track, trek, whatever Ruben called it. Grace trek. Not track, it's trek. We don't call it rules track. It's grace track. That changes people. That changes us. So here's some practical ways that I'm learning myself on how to love others. Because remember Pastor Al? Is he here today? Okay, I'm going to. Oh, I sense a bus coming. <laughs> Al said this. I don't like people. Right? And the thing is, nobody judged him for it because all of us feel the same way. We don't like people. Okay? That's why when we go on vacation, it's away from people. That's why when we buy homes, how big is the fence? Do I have a two-car garage that's connected so I don't have to go outside the garage and see my neighbors? You know, all that stuff. We don't like people. But this is how we learn to have the grace of Christ because we have to love people. And Pastor Al embraces it very well now because the Lord has changed him. But here's some practical steps that I'm learning. Step one is begin to love God's creation. That's step one. You don't have to deal with people. Let's start with step one. Enjoy. Jennifer and I love going to Joshua Park in the summer. Now, I'll show you how cheap I am. The last two years, I go, let's go to Joshua Park at night when it's closed, when they don't charge you 25 bucks because there's no gates on there. So we go and eat dinner at 29 Palms. There's no good restaurant at 29 Palms, but we do that. And then all of a sudden, we head up, uh, up to Joshua Tree around 8 o'clock. I'm telling you, I have never felt closer to God. You can combine all the worship services that I've been to than my spiritual experience in the pureness of just quietness and seeing the beautiful stars that no sound, and you can actually hear a jet that's flying at top level. And I'm, I'm telling Jennifer, this is God. This is where God is. Now, my wife's all she's focused on some dateline show that, oh, there's a dead body here, there's a dead body there, <laughs> something's going on, I'm not comfortable. You know, and I'm having this huge, great spiritual experience. I did the same thing in Angel Island in San Francisco. There's an area in Angel Island we were hiking to, and I, it just blurted out. I said, this is where I want my ashes buried. I want my ashes thrown here because it was such a beautiful experience that was connecting with God. So therefore, it's not just church, but the first is connecting with the creation that God has created. The next step once we do this, I'm learning this, is this. How many of you love your dogs? You have dogs and cats? Isn't that kind of weird if you think about it, how much you, the capacity to love an animal? I had a dog. My ex-wife and I bought the dog in 1989. She named him Brandon. And so he was a mutt that had parvo. And if you know parvo, <laughs> that if your dog has parvo, this is what the doctor said, they end up being retarded. Okay, I can connect with this dog then. And then all of a sudden I go, so I kept the dog and I kept the dog. This dog was my best friend. When I went through a divorce back in uh, 1994, I could not sleep by myself. 
pulled the dog up there, I was asleep. And so I was so loving this dog. And when the dog had to put him to sleep the, the year that I met Jennifer, man, it killed me. And, and therefore, you know, 20 years later, I still think of Brandon. I think of a dog. Have you ever done this when you lose an animal? You walk in the house and you just want to call the dog's name out? Like, hey, Brandon, Brandon, Brandon. Am I the only one that's done this? Okay, good. You're just saying that to make me feel better. But here's, here's what it is. God has created this, this capacity to love. It really is. Robin, she's expecting. Okay, you guys know that. Now, she's having a child sometime in a few months. This is my understanding because I'm not a parent. The capacity to love something you haven't even seen. The capacity to love. So when you hold that child for the first time, there is a bonding that I hear that is so powerful that you've never, ever experienced in your life. You get frustrated with the child. You get annoyed with the child. But there's a bond that is so strong with that child. Correct? I'm understanding. Okay. I don't know. I don't have a child. And I was telling last night that even the bond that I had, my child only was 10 weeks old, 10 weeks in the womb, 12 weeks in the womb when we lost. She would have been 12 years old. And I still am affected by that when I see a 12-year-old child, especially a daughter, I'm going, oh, because our capacity to love. Here's what's interesting about this. When you have such a deep capacity of love, you have a deep capacity to hurt and grieve. And so, therefore, we understand the love for a child, the love for an animal. Can you imagine the magnitude, the love that God has for you? That he's created you from the dust and how much he loves you and wants to be in you and wants to be with you? This is where it's important that we understand that we go from loving creation to understanding love. And then the hard part is learning to love our animals. But you cannot learn to love your enemies unless you go through this capacity to understand what true love is and how much God loves you and how much you love even animals. Grace has done a miracle in the love of people's hearts. And so therefore, when we understand the incarnation of Christ, so when we see somebody hurting, and we see somebody down and out, and we see something, instead of looking at them and saying, well, you're there because of the choices you made. You know what that means? That means I don't need to care for you because you deserve this. But can you imagine with Christ's heart, with Christ's arms, with Christ's feet, you help lift that person with no judgment but just love. You see what I mean? That you are being used by Christ to lift that person up. That you are showing the Christ's compassion to those people that you necessarily would not choose to love. But because the incarnation of his spirit in you, you love because he loves them. Or he loves this. So last point on screen. So if you want to love God, invite someone over to dinner. And share your food with them. Share your heart with them, and then open your eyes to see that Christ is really the guest of honor. May God bless you, and may God bless his word.